Chapter Twenty Seven of the Harbor of Doubt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Harbor of Doubt by Frank Williams. Chapter Twenty Seven, The Reward of Evil. The Nettie B was surging north, nearing Cape Breton. Nat Burns sat moodily on the top of the house and watched the schooner take him green over her bows. Within the last day a fog with a wind behind it had drifted across the lead-colored ocean, and now, although the fog was gone, the wind was still howling and bringing with it a rising sea. The equinoxes were not far off, and all skippers had a weather eye out, and paid especial attention to the stoutness of lashings and patched canvas. Never had Burns been in a blacker mood, and never had he better cause. He was three days from St. Andrews, and there he had become acquainted with several facts. The first was that no Canadian gunboat by the name of Albatross had called at said port, and left any prisoner by the name of Code Schofield. In fact, such gunboat had not called at all. Investigation at the Admiralty Office proved to Nat that the real albatross had reported from St. John's, Newfoundland, on the very day he supposed he had met her. As the waters near St. Andrews and St. John's are several hundred of miles apart, Nat was not long in forming the opinion that he had been duped. Fuming with rage, he began to investigate. Gradually he learned the story, from sailors in wine shops and general hearsay, of the mysterious schooner that had twice saved Code Schofield from actual capture, and had aided him on one or two other occasions. One man said he had heard of a retired naval officer named Foraker, who was supposed to be in command. As a matter of fact, there was a Captain Foraker aboard the schooner who navigated her and instilled the run-and-jump discipline that had so excited Code's admiration. Outside of this vague fact, Nat's knowledge was scant. He was ignorant of who owned the swift vessel. He would never have connected Elsa Mallaby with her in ten years of hard thinking. All he did know was that some unknown agency was suddenly at work in behalf of the man he hated. He notified the Admiralty that a strange schooner had impersonated the gunboat of H.I.M. George V and gave a very accurate description of her. As this was a new offense for the vessel that had already interfered with justice twice, the skippers of all the revenue cutters along the coast bent their energies to capturing or sinking this semi-piratical craft upon the receipt of radiograms to that effect. Not only had Nat set the machinery of the law in motion against the mystery schooner, but he had provided against any future dabbling with his constabulary powers by the simple expedient of having with him an officer of the law who was empowered to bring the accused murderer of Michael Burns before the bar of justice without transfer. When the supposed gunboat had removed the prisoner from his deck and borne away, for a while, on the course to St. Andrews, 
Nat, relieved of responsibility, ran over to Grand Mignon and into the harbor of Freekirk Head. His purpose in this was twofold, and treacherous in both cases. First, he lost no time in spreading the details of how Code Schofield had been captured in a drunken brawl at St. Pierre and was fighting the jailers in St. Andrews. Secondly, he had a long private interview with Bill Boughton, in which he tried to get the storekeeper to sign a contract for his, Burns's, fish at a certain price. While the former was a meanness of a hideous kind, this latter move was one of treachery against the men of Freekirk Head. The worst part of it was that Nat had about a hundred quintals of splendid-looking cod, every pound he had caught, in his hold, and these he handed over to Boughton as a sample of what was to come from him very shortly. Boughton was hard up for fish, for none had come from the banks, and bought them at a big price. But as to the signing of the contract, he demurred. When Nat could not explain why he had caught so few fish in such a long time, the storekeeper became wary and refused to commit himself. Finally, he agreed to the price if Nat would deliver a thousand quintals before any of the rest of the fleet arrived home. Consequently, it was up mainsail and sway em flat, and a fast run north for the Nettie B. During his day's stay in Freekirk Head, he had received a great bag of mail for the men of the fleet from their womenfolk at home, and this he had in his cabin, now all distributed and tied into bundles one for each schooner, so that they could be easily sorted and thrown aboard as he met them. Burns caught the fleet of a Thursday morning, just as they had dropped anchors after making a night berth, and the dories were out sampling the ground and the fish. It was just three days after Code had arrived aboard the charming lass again. As Nat worked his way in and out among the vessels, throwing their mail aboard attached to pieces of coal, he kept an eye out for the Roseanne. One very important piece of business that had brought him north was a reconciliation with Nellie Tanner, and he meant, while his men were out in the dories, to accomplish this first. At last he sighted her near the very front line of the fleet. The charming lass he could not see, for Code had taken a different direction from the Roseanne, and was one of the score of sails scattered around the horizon. But Nat was in no great hurry to get him on the minute. If the mystery schooner were attended to, then it would be merely a matter of time until the capture of Code. He ranged up astern of the Roseanne with a cheery yell and let go his anchor, ordering the dories over the side in the same breath but his aspirations received a chilling setback from none other than by Jonah Tanner himself. The old man had been sleepless for a week, trying to nose out the last for the top hall of the fleet, and here was a young scapegrace who came and cast anchor within a hundred yards of his chosen ground. 
Nat laughed carelessly at the storm of abuse that rattled over the stern of the Roseanne and rode over to her in his dory with a package of mail. "'Forget it, Papa,' he said, easily insolent, as he climbed over the rail in the teeth of a broadside. "'We're not going to foul your rodent or steal your fish. I've just come to make a call and tell you the news from home.' He handed by Jonah a couple of letters and a package containing those of the men. Two others he kept in his hand. For a few moments he chatted with the old man, telling him what had happened in Freekirk Head. Then he asked for Nellie, whom he had not seen. As he asked, she came up out of the cabin, having just finished breakfast. She was dressed in white this morning a white canvas blouse with a broad blue collar and v-neck held to modest stricture by a flowing blue tie, a white duck skirt and whitened shoes, a costume that set off her pink cheeks and bright eyes. Since the violent emotions of the fire at the head, her courtship and her self-analyzation since her split with Nat, she had seemed to become more of a woman Nat had not the slightest doubt but that Nellie by this time would have recovered from her angry pet of their last interview. He was very certain that their ruction had only been temporary. Nellie was unfeignedly glad to see him. He stretched out his arms to her impulsively, but she refused him, and he laughed the rebuff off good-naturedly. "'Oh, did you bring any letters for me?' she cried eagerly. He held out the two he had kept in his hand. "'Oh, goodness, Nat! Only from Mama and Ludy Bissell. You excited me so!' He spread a tarpaulin amid the clutter amidships, and they sat down. She excused herself and began to read her letters, first opening the one from the girlfriend which, as such letters usually do, contained nothing of importance. Then she opened the one from her mother. It was long, and she settled back to the pleasure of deciphering it. Nat smoked and whistled and looked out to sea, waiting for her to finish. Therefore he did not observe the changes that passed across her face. Near the middle of the letter, the color rose to her forehead in a hot wave, but at the end it had receded, leaving her pale. Methodically she folded the letter and returned it to its envelope. "'Well, dearest,' he said cheerfully, "'all through? Now I want to talk to you.' He reached for her hand, but she withdrew it beyond his reach, and looked at him with the steady brown eyes whose level gaze he hated. "'Come on now, Nellie,' he said impatiently, stung by her relentlessness. "'You ain't going to be mad forever about that other time, are you? I was out of temper and said things—' "'Mother was up to Mallaby House for dinner a little while ago,' interrupted Nellie, as though she had not heard him. "'Yes, that's good. Fine place, ain't it? "'As I was saying, I forgot myself. "'They talked about us, too. "'Mother says that's nearly all they talked about.' 
Must have been short of conversation. And I want to say, Nellie, that I'll try never to speak like that to you again. I... Mother says she learned things about you that she never had imagined before, persisted Nellie with quiet insistence. But again Nat did not seem to have heard her. With an awkward motion he drew from his pocket the little glazed paper box that contained the engagement ring. "'Please,' he said, "'I want you to take this again.' He was in earnest. "'It's strange Elsa Mallaby should be able to tell mother things about you.' Nat lost his patience. He had tried his best to make peace, and the girl was only baiting him for her own amusement. "'What the deuce is all this about that Mallaby woman?' he asked. "'I should think you'd listen to me, Nellie.' "'If you will listen to me first, then I'll listen to you as long as you like.' "'I agree,' he said, thrusting the ring-box back into his pocket. "'Only make it short, will you, little girl?' "'Yes, I will.' she promised, without smiling. I merely said that Mother and Mrs. Mallaby had discussed you and me, and our marriage, and that Mrs. Mallaby had said some things about you. Well, lots of people do that, he smiled. Yes, but they haven't said just this thing, Nat. What was that? I'm going to let you think. Just suppose that Mrs. Mallaby hated you very much and wanted to do you harm. What would she tell my mother? The girl, pale and on the verge of an hysterical outburst, watched his face out of her mask of self-control. The blood beneath his tan receded and was replaced by a sickly, greenish hue. That flash had brought its memory, a memory that had lain buried beneath the events of his later life. Did she know? How could she know? To the girl watching him there was confirmation enough. She was suddenly filled with inexpressible distaste for this man who had in days past smothered her with caresses and dinned into her ears speeches concerning a passion that he called love. "'I see it is all true,' she said quietly. "'This is all I have to say. Now I will listen to what you were going to tell me a few minutes ago. That is, if you still wish to say it.' Nat read his doom in those few calm words. The things that had been in his mind to say rose and choked his throat. The thought of the ring in his pocket seemed like profanation. He gulped twice and tried to speak, but the words clotted on his tongue. Still she sat quietly looking at him, politely ready to listen. With a horrible croaking sound he got to his feet, looked irresolutely at her for a moment and then went to the side where his dory lay. She next saw him rowing dazedly to the Nettie B, and then she turned her face from the sight of him. 
and suddenly into her mind, long prepared, came the thought of Code Schofield. Amid the chaos of her shattered ideals, his face and figure rose more desirable than all the earth. "'Oh, heaven, give him to me, some time,' she breathed in a voice of humble prayer. Nat Burns went back to his schooner, squarely defeated for the first time in his life. Humbled and cringing like a whipped dog, he made his dory fast to the Nettie's rail and slunk aft to the solitude of his cabin. He was glad that even the cook was looking the other way. "'She has flouted me, and the whole of Grand Mignon will know it,' he said to himself. "'Then they will want to know why, but that is easy enough to lie about. "'Hang that Mallaby woman! Who would ever think she'd squeal?' "'Yes, and Schofield, the smug crook. "'They're the two that are doing the damage to me.' Nat's lifelong knowledge of Code's and Nellie's affection returned to him now with a more poignant pang of memory than he had ever experienced. With the hopeless egotism of a totally selfish nature, he laid his calamity and love to activity on Code's part, he was pretty well aware of Elsa's extravagant favoritism of Code, and he immediately figured that Code had enlisted Elsa on his side to the ruin of Nat. "'So I've got to beat em all now, have I?' he asked grimly, his jaw setting with an ugly click. "'Schofield and Mallaby, and, yes, while I'm about it, Tanner, too.' The old man never liked me, the girl hates me, and I wouldn't mind giving him a dig along with the rest. Just to show him that I'm not so easy and peaceful as I look. But how? For a considerable space of time he sat there, his head low on his breast, and his eyes half-closed as his brain went over scheme after scheme. The detective that Nat had brought from St. Andrews stuck his head down the cabin and remarked, "'Look here, Captain. I want to arrest my man and get back. Why don't you hunt up that ship and let me finish?' "'I've got something a lot better on hand, Durkee,' remarked Nat with a grin, rising from his chair, a plan having leaped full-blown into his mind." "'Just stick along with me, and you'll get your man all right.' He went outside and called the men in with a revolver shot and a trawl tub run to the masthead. It was about noon when they came in, and after eating, three o'clock passed before they had finished dressing down. "'Any of you boys run across a dory from the Nighthawk?' asked Nat as the men came inboard with their shower of fish. "'Yes,' said a youth. "'I've found one of them, and he told me the hawk's luck was jonahed this trip. "'Where's the packet lying?' "'About twelve miles southeast, near the edge of the bank.' Nat went to the wheel himself. "'Up jib and foresail,' he sung out, "'and sway em flat. 
Mainsails and topsails after that. Raymond, overhaul the balloon, staysails and traysail. Maybe we'll drive her a little forward through. Burns found the Nighthawk in a patch of sea by herself, more or less deserted by the other schooners because of the Jonah report that had gone abroad concerning her. Her dories were just coming in from the day's work partially loaded with fish. Hello, bawled Nat. Is Billy Stetson aboard? Billy was the skipper. Yes, you want to see him? Yes, send him along over. It's mighty important, but I ain't going aboard no Jonah boat. Tell him he'll be glad he came. Presently Stetson came, and the two retired into the cabin of the Nettie B. End of chapter 27 Recording by Roger Moline